There is no other time when you can see so many scientists in the medical field working together to try to find a cure or a vaccine. Um, it's my son, Andrew, just talking to me about that the other day. There are thousands, if not tens of thousands, all around the world trying to understand the virus, looking at the genetic uh, constituency and of this virus and how we can combat it. And I am sure with all these activities and momentum that one of those days, hopefully sooner than later, we'll find a vaccine and maybe even a cure for it later. Welcome to Coffee with Bishop Suriel, a podcast for all things Coptic. This is a conversation about authentic Christian faith, Coptic history, patristic writings, the family, arts and music, religious education, youth matters, evangelism, and much more. Bishop Suriel likes his coffee like he likes his conversation, light, sweet, and scorching. We'll be joined by an array of guests who'll share their experiences, their backgrounds, and their insights to bring about an exciting discussion, and we hope you agree. Enjoy the podcast, and please welcome our host, Bishop Suriel. As we're joined by Professor Wegi Ishak in a series titled Professor Ishak, Coptic Family Man and Visionary Technologist. We are also being joined by Nader Hanna, the founder of CopticNN.com, who will also be asking some interesting questions of Dr. Ishak. This will be part one of our two-part series. Here's His Grace and our special guests. Your Grace. Irini Pasi, peace be with you. It is a great pleasure to have this two-part series titled Professor Ishak, Coptic Family Man and Visionary Technologist. And we also have with us Nader Hanna, who will have some interesting questions. I welcome all of you wherever you may be right now. You may be in the car, on the train, at the office, or even still in your pajamas feeding the kids breakfast, or relaxing at home after a long day's work. I would also like to welcome my distinguished guest this week, Professor Wagih Shafi Ishak, or he's also known as Tony, and maybe he can tell us in a moment uh, why that nickname. Uh, and he's from Cupertino in California. Yes, from Silicon Valley. Now, that is a fascinating place that I had the opportunity of visiting back in 2018 as part of my senior executive MBA. Cupertino is also where one finds the Apple headquarters, and I have been a big fan of their products since the 1980s. Dr. Ishak can actually see the Apple headquarters from his home, and Dr. Ishak is the Division Vice President and Chief Technologist at Corning Research and Development Corporation in Sunnyvale, California, an innovative glass technology company. 
He is also an adjunct professor at Stanford University's Electrical Engineering Department. Joining me also in the conversation is Nader Hanna, a branding and digital marketing pioneer who has just launched an exciting online Coptic newspaper called CopticNN.com, and I invite you all to visit the website. So welcome, Professor Ishak and Nader. It is a great joy to have you both with us today on Coffee with Bishop Suriel. Our episode today is titled Professor Ishak, Coptic Family Man and Visionary Technologist. So I welcome both of you. And uh, if you'd like to say any introductory words before we get into our conversation today. Thanks, Your Grace, Bishop uh, Surreal. Um, as you said, my name is Wagi Shafi Ishaq, or Ishaq. I'm used to different pronunciations. And um, thanks to Nader for the introduction. I'm really looking forward to dialoguing with you and telling you a little bit about my background and what I do today. Wonderful. Could you tell us where the nickname Tony came from? It's, uh, you're right. Uh, what happened is that I was born in December 4th, 1949, and my father, for some reason, liked the name Tony, and he immediately called me Tony. And two days later, he went to his work. He was working in the Egyptian Air Force, and the commander of the Air Force, his boss, told him, congratulations, I hear that you have a boy. So I'm sure you called him after me and you named him after me. So my father said, yes, sir. And he went home through the uh, birth certificates, changed my name from Tony to Wagi because the commander of the Air Force's name was Wagi Abaza, a well-known figure in Egypt at that time. And up until today, you can see that my family still call me Tony and people at work call me Wagi. So I'm, <laughs> I'm used to both names now. That's a very interesting story. And uh, Nader, welcome. Well, thank you, Sayyidina Bishop Ambassador for having me here today. I'm really happy to be here and uh, congratulations on your fascinating podcast. Uh, Dr. Wagi, it's always a pleasure to talk to you. And I appreciate you joining us today on Coffee with Bishop Surreal. Thanks very much, Nether. And I hope you both have your uh, coffee ready as we will shortly begin our fascinating discussion with uh, Professor Wagir in a few moments. So let's take a short break. Well, welcome again. Uh, Professor Wagir Ishak and Nader Hanna, and uh, a great honor to have you with us. But let me give you a little bit of background about uh, Professor Ishak. Wagir was born on December 4th, 1949, near Cairo Airport. His father's name was Shafiq Ishak, and his mother's name was Leila Tadros. He has two sisters and a brother, the late Soher, Sami, and the late Samia. The family moved to Shubra in uh, December of 1953 when Wagihi's uncle built a new elementary school, St. Catherine's Elementary School. 
And after completing his primary and secondary education, Wagih joined the military technical college for one year. Then Cairo University, where he graduated with honors in 1971 with a Bachelor of Science in Electrical Engineering and was appointed as a teaching assistant. He also completed with honors a second Bachelor of Science in Mathematics at Ain Shams University in 1973, one of my favorite uh, subjects. I worked as a high school maths teacher for about six years in uh, Sydney, Australia. And uh, his wife also uh, uh, studied mathematics as well, as we'll see. Wagih immigrated to Ontario, Canada in August 1973 and did further studies completing a master's in 1975 and a PhD in 1978, both in electrical engineering at McMaster University. It only made sense to move to Silicon Valley later that same year and work for some great companies such as Hewlett-Packard. And then, in 2007, joined Corning Research and Development Corporation, where he still works today as the Division Vice President and Chief Technologist. Dr. Ishak is also an adjunct professor at Stanford University's Department of Electrical Engineering. Wagih was married to Raga, or Hope in the English language, on August 24, 1974. So I imagine the, the wedding took place then in, in Canada, and that's where you met, and perhaps you can tell us a little bit about that in a moment. And they have two sons, Edward and Andrew. And in fact, Edward, I, I served very closely with uh, at St. Mark's Church in Manhattan in 2010. Wonderful uh, young man, uh, along with his brother Andrew. Wagih's wife, Hope, began her career also studying mathematics and electrical engineering in Egypt and Canada. But then, after arriving to California, changed paths and completed a master's and PhD in educational and general psychology, a complete turnaround, complete change of uh, career. So it will be interesting to, to know why from electrical engineering and mathematics to go to uh, uh, a humanities uh, degree in uh, psychology and PhD is uh, fascinating. Their two sons also have PhDs, Eddie in computer engineering, and Andrew in communications. Eddie is married to Irina, who I also know very well, and they have two daughters, and Andrew is married to Heather and have a girl and a boy. Professor Ishak, what a distinguished career. You must be so proud of your achievements and those of your wife and sons. And in fact, you know, we're all uh, honored uh, to know you, uh, and to know uh, uh, of all of this amazing uh, career that you've had. And it's a great honor for the whole Coptic community. So welcome, and I uh, welcome you to perhaps say a few words about this and uh, uh, why your wife changed careers and, uh, and so on. 
Thank you, Your Grace. It's a, it's a pleasure to be here. And uh, I think you mentioned my biography very well. Um, after I finished high school, my father wanted me to, to be a, a pilot. He really, he was working in the Air Force and he spent all his 45-year career, working career with the Air Force. So he believed that I should be an officer in the Air Force, which um, I resisted a little bit, but then he he told me stories about the, the heroes and the Egyptian Air Force and, and, and enticed me to even apply for the Air Force Academy, which I did. And uh, I passed all the tests except at the last minute when the uh, when the head of the examining group he just called me and said why do you want to be a pilot i said because my father wanted me so he said no <laughs> go home uh, i wanted you to say i want to be a pilot so i wanted to study engineering so <clears throat> the best compromise was to go to the military technical college where i studied both military tactics and uh, science and engineering but i left after one year <clears throat> And they joined the um, Faculty of Engineering at Cairo University, graduated in 1971, and I was appointed a teaching assistant. And at that time, teaching assistant job, <clears throat> excuse me, was really very rewarding, very nice, very um, uh, a good uh, uh, salary, good schedule, but only working for eight hours a week. So I took this opportunity and joined the Inchamps University and got another bachelor. And I joined the American University in Cairo, where I met Raga. She was a student. Ah. I was her teaching assistant. No conflict of interest or anything, but we, uh, <laughs> we met on... Um, uh, January of 1973, I proposed in March of 1973, and I took a plane and flew from Cairo to Canada on August 28, 1973. Today, August 28, it's my 47 years in North America. Oh, congratulations. That's a, a wonderful opportunity then uh, to yeah, have this I, podcast today on yeah. this occasion. She, she was just, yeah, she was just telling me today, Raga was just telling me today, that's the anniversary of coming here. Uh, Raga and her family immigrated to Los Angeles. I, I went to, uh, I flew from Toronto to Los Angeles on August 18th, 1974. I met her uh, brothers for the first time. And on the 19th of August of 1974, the 20th, I went and got the rings. The 21st, we invited seven families to the wedding. The 22nd, she got the dress and I got my uh, tuxedo. And we got married on August 24th at St. Mark Coptic Orthodox Church. In, uh, so, in Los Angeles. In Los Angeles. So four days ago or three days ago was our 46th anniversary. Oh, congratulations. Thank you. We spent the honeymoon one day at Disneyland on the <laughs> 25th of August. I flew back the 26th. She flew back to Canada with me on uh, um, to, to, to be with me on the 29th of August, where she started working on her bachelor degree in electrical engineering. Yeah. So both of us graduated from Canada on the same day in May of 1978. And I was really lucky. It was I didn't do anything 
to find so many offers coming from companies in Silicon Valley. I had those six offers. I didn't know what to do with them. So we we immigrated again from Canada to the U.S. in November of 1978. I joined Hewlett Packard and became a member of the technical staff. And Draga went to do her master's degree in computer engineering and engineering management. So a slight change. But then she said, I really want to understand you. And I need to study psychology to understand you. That's what she said. <laughs> and that's why she switched career to psychology. And, and she really wants to play to work with kids and and um, and help them. So she studied at UC Santa Cruz and then she ended up with a PhD at Walden University. So I'm really happy with what she did. And she was a driving force behind every member of my family must have a PhD. So she insisted on that. And Edward got a PhD from Columbia University in computer engineering. And Andrew got a PhD from UT Austin, University of Texas at Austin in communications. So Eddie now works at Bloomberg in Manhattan, as you might know, your Uh, grace. And Andrew is a a professor at Santa Clara University here, just next to the Apple headquarters. Oh, wow. uh, You must be so proud of them. That's uh... I'm, yeah, I'm, thanks God. It was those two boys did not give me any trouble. Just, just great. Yeah, well, what I know of Eddie is a, a very fine young uh, man, and I really enjoyed, you know, serving very closely with him at St. Mark's Church in Manhattan. Always a beautiful smile, beautiful family. May God bless him and his family, and Thank also you. Andrew and his family, and all of you. So if I have, uh, if we go into uh, our, our main conversation, I would like to take you back now to your childhood. And what do you remember about that time back in the 1950s and 60s? Um, Shobra does have a large Coptic Christian population. So right. was your family religious and which church or which parish uh, did you go to back then? Yes. So... Um uh, as you mentioned, uh, because my father was working in the Air Force, we lived in, in a remote area near Cairo Airport when I was born. Um, and one day I fell off the balcony for, from, for in the house and my mother oh, didn't no. know what to do. She was alone and, and, and she said, I can't stay in this home. At that time, my uncle, her brother, started uh, building. He was visionary enough to build a primary school called St. Catherine School in Shobra. So we all moved there, and I joined that school, and uh, from there to uh, to other schools, Tof Ayeth and Oya. That's where I got my uh, high de- uh, high school degree. Uh, yes, this this area of the country is very very religious. Uh, my father and my mother were regular at church, Saint George Church, and uh, I was uh, attending uh, Sunday school from 1953 and the person who who got me into Sunday school was uh, his name was Fuad Awad who's now uh, Bishop Pesenti uh-huh. uh, so I know Bishop Pesenti for mm. since 1953 That's and uh, he comes and visits us every single year here since we were in Canada 1973 <laughs> all the way up until two years ago so yes. for about 43 years, he will come here every single year. 
And uh, unfortunately, because of his, uh, his health. ailing health, he couldn't mm. uh, travel in the past two years. Yes. So, yes, yes uh, the police, uh, we, we were very, very close family. All my uncles and aunts were living close by, and uh, um, it was a wonderful time. And uh, I remember my father, when I, was, when I was eight, between eight and 12, he used to take me to his office uh, every day in the summer. Uh, there was a very good swimming pool there. He, he wanted me to to learn swimming, uh-huh. but as we walked towards his office at in Manchester Bakery, that's where the Air Force headquarters was. He will stop me at the office of the commander of the Air Force, and he say, "Look, read the list inside his office. What does it say?" And I said, "Well, it lists the top seven commanders." of the Air Force, and he said, memorize him by heart. And I will, ne- that was 1953, uh, that was 1959, 60, 61. Yes. And till today, I remember those seven names. I can list them right away now. And that, that's how he got me interested in the Air Force. Mm, mm, very interesting. You said you had the fall from the balcony. Which level were you on? And did First you get, level. Uh, it, it was a minor injury in my okay. head. Uh, that's why my wife always said, yeah, it's because of what happened to your head. <laughs> so uh, it w- I fell down. It was uh, it was injured. And she, she just, it was a, a house in the middle of nowhere in the desert. So uh, she she. She couldn't. She didn't know what to do, but luckily it was okay. Yes, I mean there wouldn't have been much around the airport back then in the fifties. Yeah, that's correct. So why did you decide to immigrate to Canada and to continue studying? Good question. When I was when I was hired as a teaching assistant at Cairo University, it is required that for me to maintain this really prestigious job that I get my master's and PhD. I could have done it in Egypt, but I started sending uh, applications for American and Canadian universities. In 1971, just after the death of uh, the late President Nasser, relationship between Cairo, Egypt and uh, the US was not very good. So I didn't get much, uh, many scholarships from the US universities. I got accepted at Berkeley, UC Berkeley and Columbia University but I couldn't pay for my education. But in Canada, from Canada, I got every single application. I got a scholarship and I decided to choose McMaster University because my PhD advisor was very, uh, uh, showed his care uh, uh, towards me, kept sending me papers and books to read before I traveled. So I decided to move to Canada in, in 1973 and I don't regret it. It is. It was. I spent six of the best years of my career uh, living in uh, Hamilton near Toronto Airport. Yeah, well, Canada is a very beautiful uh, country, and I'm sure it was still back then. And uh, uh, I don't know much about McMaster University, but uh, I guess you engaged with them because of that uh, professor that kept on sending in your material, and you felt that they were really caring and wanted to support you in every way. So I'd like to hand over now to uh, Nader Hanna. Welcome, Nader, um, who has a question for you as well. Thank you, Grace. Uh, Dr. Wagih, uh, if you allow me, I'll take you on a ride back. And if you could please tell us 
what was the Coptic Church like in Ontario, Canada in the 1970s? Ah, uh, you know, the very first Coptic priest uh, outside Egypt was Abu Namoros Moros. Uh, uh, he is in, in, in Toronto. He went to Toronto in 1964 and started moving around to find the, the Coptic families. So when I arrived in uh, Canada in 1973 in Hamilton, there was no church. And the closest town was Toronto. So St. Mark Coptic Orthodox Church started in Toronto, I think in 1971. They didn't have a building, so they rented a school. And we used to go to that school. I didn't have a car in the first year. So the late Johanna Rahib, a really distinguished man who uh, kept looking for all the youth in the neighbor uh, cities to Toronto. And he will take us in his big van every Sunday at 7 o'clock in the morning, drive for one hour to Toronto, and we'll go there. Uh, about 200 families. And uh, uh, between 1973 and 78, we started building a new church. And the church was completed just before we left Canada. And in fact, my son, Edward, was baptized uh, in November of 1978, one of the first kids to be baptized there. So Canada, has, that area of Canada has a large number of Coptic congregation, uh, very closely knit, clo uh, very close together, with now many, many, many in, uh, Coptic churches. I go there four times a year. Um, and uh, I go and see the churches, they're wonderful. They are very, very close community. Yeah, and certainly, you know, the, the church and the diocese there as well in Mississauga, it's uh, expanded uh, a lot. And now St. Mark's Church, where you started, they have uh, a huge, beautiful church that I had the opportunity to visit a couple of years ago. So that, that's wonderful to hear and to see the, the growth and the expansion of the church and the ministry uh, to the Copts and the new people that may be coming to join the church as well. Uh, thank you, Nader, for that question. So why did you decide to move to Silicon Valley in 1978? Apple was gaining traction back then. Um, and also, what are your experiences working with Apple? I understand that you uh, uh, had a very important role to develop the glass that Apple uses in many of their products, particularly the iPhone uh, and iPad. You know, as I mentioned at the beginning, I'm a big fan of Apple. I remember having my, having my first uh, box uh, computer with a floppy drive back in the early uh, 1980s and th that was a very interesting experience and to think in uh, almost 40 years time you know how computing and technology has uh, developed is is mind-boggling so tell us a little bit about that uh, my phd thesis was about uh, computer memories and at that time there was something called magnetic bubble memories someone in bell labs in New Jersey, uh, discovered that phenomena, and that's what where I did my PhD. Um, by the time I finished, when I, I defended my PhD in um, 
May of 1978. But before I defended my thesis, because I was one of very few people working in that field, there weren't many people excited about getting into that field. Um, there were so many companies who are interested in hiring people with PhDs, especially in the U.S. So I remember there was a conference in um, Minneapolis, uh, Minnesota, in December of 1977. I went and gave a paper at the Hilton Hotel there. And after I gave the paper, I was bombarded by people coming from all those companies. They want to talk to me. And I thought they want to ask questions about my research, but they were willing to give job offers on the spot without an interview. So again, another area where I was very lucky. I didn't have to work hard uh, uh, to find a job. And, and, and I remember my thesis advisor, um, his name was Professor Edward Delatore. Um, he passed away uh, December of 2019. But he, is, he, he looked at me and said, just get the job offers. I'll, I'll help you sort them out. So I remember I got an offer from National Semiconductors, from Intel, from uh, Rockwell in Los Angeles, from Bell Labs, from IBM, from Hewlett Packard, a few other companies. And I, I didn't know, okay, so where should I go? New Jersey, I stay in uh, Ottawa, uh, go to Los Angeles, or go to Silicon Valley. And I gave it to my advisor. Ed Delatore looked at me and said, you know what, you lived in Egypt for a long time. Go to the San Jose area. It, the weather is very close. It's much cleaner than Southern California and Los Angeles. It's not as smoggy. Hewlett Packard is a great company. Just go there. And I said, okay. And I said, yes, I'm coming to Hewlett Packard. And that happened. I accepted the offer and I flew November 28th with Raga and Eddie. Eddie was two months. We arrived here on the 28th, 29th, we settled in a hotel. They gave us a suite in a hotel. And I think the, 20, the, the 30th of, of uh, November, I started working. That's so amazing. And I didn't know much about Silicon Valley at that time. But once uh -huh. I came here, what a contrast between the, the way of life here and in other places. Even people do walk faster. Um, <laughs> I'm surrounded today. We have 4,300 companies in Silicon Valley. Wow. We have the large companies, the small companies. You have the car companies. You have the computer companies. You have the silicon companies. You have uh, medical technology, biotechnology. And the big secret of Silicon Valley is Stanford University. Oh. Stanford University was... Professor Frederick Terman, who was the Dean of Engineering uh, in the 60s and 70s, uh, 50s and 60s actually, he just, he is the one who told people like Bill Hewlett and David Packard, they were his students, and he said, don't go and work for a large company, don't work for IBM or GE, start your own company. They oh. started Hewlett Packard. Uh, the Varian Brothers, start a company, start Varian Associates. And, and Stanford University is credited to building Silicon Valley. So you are right, Your Grace. It's, it's a very unique environment. At that time, Apple was um, 
struggling with with what kind of computer they they should uh, build. In fact, Steve Wozniak, the co-founder of Apple, used to work at Hewlett Packard. Oh, and and his boss. Did you did you know him? No, I did not know him, but I I I heard the story that his manager. Uh, told him, what personal computer? Go back to your job, Jim. You just forget about personal computers. And that's why Steve Wozniak left the company. So it was just one of the big mistakes that HP <laughs> made is that they, they uh, kicked out someone who started a company with, with uh, the late Steve Jobs. And uh, the rest was history. It's, it's an amazing company. It's, um, um, as I say, I, I, I go uh, drive by their... Uh, headquarters a lot and working at Corning my current job Corning has invented a glass that is very robust very hard to break very hard to scratch called gorilla glass yes and the story goes like that in 2007 Steve Jobs called Corning he actually called the operator and said I want (laughs) to talk to your CEO and the operator told him sorry sir we don't have anyone talk to our CEO. Give me your number. <laughs> and he gave her the number. So when Wendell Weeks, our CEO, got the number, he tried to call and he called. Actually, that was the, hit, the, the main number for Apple. And the operator told him, sorry, we don't have anyone who can talk to <laughs> Steve Jobs. Finally, they got connected in, in March of 2007. And Steve Jobs told uh, Wendell Weeks, I'm making a new phone. I want to protect the phone because people will put the phone in their pockets and they have coins and they have keys and it will scratch the phone. Do you have a glass that doesn't break? And when I hear this sentence, glass that doesn't break, I mean, glass, the first thing that comes to your mind when you hear glass, it will break. So so, uh, Wendell Weeks said, yes, we do. Because in the 60s, we had a car company who came to us and wanted to build a glass that doesn't break for the windshield. And we invented that glass, but the auto company changed their mind. But we have all the data. So within seven months, that was a big success story in Corning. We came up with the Gorilla Glass that now is on 6.7 billion devices. It's in almost every brand you can think of. Phone, tablet, computer, some TVs. Six point um, seven billion. Yeah. yeah. And what was your role in designing this glass? What was your input in this process? I really do not have any input because I joined Corning at two thousand seven, and my specialty is in fiber optics. So I. My research and activities at Corning is more toward fiber optics because Corning is number one glass company in the world and also number one fiber optic company in the world. Yeah. In the 70s, three scientists in Corning invented the low-loss fiber that ushered the internet. Without that, mm-hmm. we'll not be talking today yeah. because Corning makes 200 million kilometers of fiber every year. And that's what, it's a God-given gift called fiber optics where you have yes. essentially unlimited bandwidth. Yeah. So while I'm proud and brag about Gorilla Glass, I really do not have any 
uh, role here, but my activities have been in fiber optics. Right. And we'll, we'll talk a, a little bit more later about some of your achievements. Uh, but um, back then in the <coughs> 70s, were there many startup companies uh, or was this a later phenomenon? And did you get involved in any startups and were they successful? Okay. Uh, there were small startups. In the 70s, it was mainly the Hewlett-Packard, the Intel, the Texas Instruments, the IBM, the Apple, the large companies. Uh, in earnest, the phenomena of startups started in the early 1980s. Right. And uh, with that, a whole community of venture capitalists mm. started in Silicon Valley. In fact, we have a street called Sand Hill Road. And that's known as the richest street in the world because 70% of the venture capitalists are on that street. So during the 2000 era, you couldn't drive on that street. Everybody wanted to meet the VCs to get money to start their own yeah, company. So yeah. the, the phenomena of small startups started early 80s, but the 90s and the 2000 and today – we, we can't find, there is a computer that runs names for those startups. We can't find enough names for them. So people are called them ABC and NYX <laughs> companies because they, we can't find enough names for startups. Um, uh, my, when I joined Hewlett-Packard and became the vice president of, of uh, optics research at, at Hewlett-Packard, that gave me the opportunity to deal with universities and startups. So I invested a lot in startups. And I was recruited by some of those startups. Oh. If when my wife asked me what is the biggest financial blunder and mistake you made in your career, <laughs> I tell her that in 1997, I rejected an amazing offer that would have changed my life. And she knows that very well. So I was recruited by many startups, but in my role at chief, as chief technologist for Corning, I spend 70% of my time dealing with startups, finding if they can fill a gap in our technology portfolio. Should we invest in them? Should we buy them? Should we collaborate with them? Or should we say, no, thank you? And over the past 15, 13 years at Corning, I've been um, very, very active in investment and acquisition for those startups. So could, could you tell us uh, what was that project that you rejected that would have changed your <laughs> life? <laughs> okay. Um, well, in 1997, in December 21st, I was sitting in my home, in fact, very close to the chair I'm sitting. And I get someone at the gate buzzing me. And he introduced myself, his, himself, and I knew, I knew of him. I didn't know him. And I opened the door for him. He came in, and he told me I would like you to be my uh, vice president of research for a new startup that I'm forming. And I said, what's the name of the startup? He gave me the name. I don't want to mention the name now because I, <laughs> I, I, I think I would keep it like that. It starts with an E, but I said, oh, that's a very small startup. I visited them. Uh, he said, well, just open the envelope. He gave me an envelope, Manila envelope, which I opened. And he, it, it says that if I join him now in, in four years, I'll make 
five, six million dollars. And I just looked at him and said, listen, I'm, I'm vice president at Hewlett Packard. Uh, uh, I'm not sure. And that was December 21st. He flew to Taiwan the next day and he called me on Christmas Eve and he said, did you make up your mind? I said, no, I'm not coming. Why? He said, you know, no, I can't leave. I I have the best team in optics in the world. I have 400 PhDs in my group. I draw my energy from them. They are the best of the best. And he said, what will make you come to join us? So I actually give him something that's ridiculous. I told him, like, <laughs> if you give me a half a million dollars as, as a hiring bonus, I will come. He said, yes, I'll give it to you. Wow. So I, I'll just... I startled. Uh, didn't know what to do. He was very uh, sure of himself. Oh, he he had tons of money. Nineteen ninety-seven, ninety-eight, and that was December twenty-eighth, nineteen ninety-seven, where money was no problem at all. It wasn't the money; it was just coming up with an idea. Mm. Well, anyway, um, on January first, I told them I'm coming. Oh. He said, okay, your start time will be January 8th. I told, yeah, we celebrate Christmas on January 7th. So let me start on January 8th. And oh. everything was ready for me. And here's what happened, Your Grace. I went to my boss. And I told him I'm leaving at HP. And he told me, no, you're not. I said, well, I am. And on January 8th, I started driving from my home. I was supposed to go to San Jose for the new job. I found myself in Palo Alto in the parking lot. I didn't know that I was driving back to my old job. And when I arrived there, I said, I'm not going to this new job. And I went to my boss and said, I changed my mind. He said, of course, I know that you changed your mind. Go back to your office. So it was a job that you were previously in before, the same company? No, Hewlett Packard. I was at HP and they recruited me and I said I'm leaving. But yes. as I said, on January 8th, I found myself driving back to my... Ah, to your same job. Same job. So, <laughs> I, 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 of course, I called him and I called my, my the guy who recruited me and he was very unhappy. Very, very yeah, unhappy. Yeah, yeah. And he said, you have to tell me a name of someone to replace you, which I did. I gave him a name of a friend from New Jersey right. who came and joined in two months and made a lot of money. <laughs> so Every time I, him, I said, where's my commission? And he said, well, I'm sorry. Um, so anyway, it, it, that man who hired me at this startup, he was the luckiest. We call him the luckiest man in Silicon Valley because wow. he made like very ridiculous amount of money, hundreds of millions of dollars. But So it's uh, a major company now? Uh, it was bought twice by other companies. And right. then 2001 and 2002, everything went down. And it was one of them that went down. He got the money before that because he left. Right. So, um, so it, it, it something I learned. I was recruited later for another company. And I, I just, I found that my father who kept telling me, stay with one company, retire from one company. It stayed in my brain imprinted in my brain now i'm different i'm advising young youth to if you want to take a risk take it early on in your career yeah yeah just don't wait until you are 50 mm. uh, 
start earlier. Yeah, because these startups is not easy. I remember when I was there for a week uh, in Silicon Valley with the MBA in 2018, and they put us in for one day to look at uh, all these pitches um, that uh, uh, startups were putting to some venture capitalists, and uh, yes. it's really cutthroat stuff, <laughs> not easy Actually. at all. And, uh, I really felt for them as they were making their presentations. When was that? 2018, yes, okay. two years ago. In 1997, ago. 98, 99, it was much easier. Today, yeah. you ask the tough questions yeah. and you reject, you reject about Most 80% of, of yeah. the proposals. Yeah, yeah. So let us take a short break and we'll be right back. I'd like to bring uh, Nader back in uh, to ask a question about our current pandemic. Nader? Well, as you can see, Dr. Wagi, the global novel coronavirus situation is rapidly evolving and expanding. What role has technology played during the COVID-19 pandemic? The obvious thing was that everybody went virtual and people start Zooming and WebExing and Skyping uh, to, 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 to connect. And one thing that I'm not sure people have noticed, the Internet stayed on. It never went down. It, it is amazing that the Internet that was built in the 70s, and of course it evolved over the years, it's so resilient and so robust that the bandwidth was okay. People had some delays and some small issues, but I think the optical communication network over optical fiber and ending up with copper cables and, and, and wireless have shown that they are so critical for our communication. So I would say that the technology that was very obvious is just remote learning FaceTime, Zooming, talking over the internet was 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 clearly uh, a major major uh, um, achievement. Uh, that without that, I think people would have been so depressed. So this is one thing. I also think that there is no other time when you can see so many scientists in the medical field working together to try to find a cure or a vaccine. Um, it's my son, Andrew, was just talking to me about that the other day. There are thousands, if not tens of thousands, all around the world trying to understand the virus, looking at the genetic uh, constituency and of this virus and how we can combat it. And I am sure with all these activities and momentum, that one of those days, hopefully sooner than later, we'll find a vaccine and maybe even a cure for it later. So the, the communication area is very important. It proved important during the pandemic. The med medical technology and pharmaceutical drug discovery is very important. And also entertainment, because people have a lot of time on their hands and... Um, um, 
they want to entertain themselves. So <clears throat> watching programs on TV or on their <clears throat> uh, mobile devices is very important. I always say people want three things from life. Good health, good communications, good entertainment. That's all you want. Good health. You want to go to a doctor's office and he or she will diagnose you in a very short time and give you a personalized medicine that will not have any side effects. That will be ideal. Good communications. You want to communicate with anyone, anytime, anywhere, almost free. And isn't that what we have today? If you look at your, you're probably using an iPhone adder. And uh, uh, how much do you pay every month? Not much at all. Yeah, I mean, 50, 80, $100. If you pay $100 and you connect with anyone, anytime, whether it's text or voice or video or digital internet, it's just amazing what happened in the past 30 years. And the third thing is good com uh, entertainment. You want online, uh, on demand, you can choose any time, you can stream. Uh, imagine that when the church is closed in the, in the world, but yet you have the priest and a few deacons doing the liturgy and people are streaming that liturgy. And at least, yes, you're not getting communion, but you are at least enjoying listening to the liturgy. Uh, so... Those are the three technologies I, I think that proved very important during the pandemic. True. Very true. Thanks very much, yeah, Nader, for that. Yeah. Well, this concludes part one of our two-part series titled Professor Ishak, Coptic Family Man and Visionary Technologist. Until next week, stay safe and well and be inspired by the Holy Spirit. Be sure to tune in next week when His Grace will be joined again by Professor Wegi Ishak in our series titled Professor Ishak, Coptic Family Man and Visionary Technologist. This will be part two in our two-part series. Don't miss out on this fascinating conversation with a prominent American Copt over a cup of coffee. To join the conversation, please visit our website, coffeewithbishopsuriel.org. And don't forget, after you listen, you can really help out by rating the show. Thank you for listening to Coffee with Bishop Suriel, a podcast for all things Coptic. To join the conversation, please visit our website, coffeewithbishopsuriel.org. And always remember, the best way to start any morning is with God and a cup of coffee.